policy support for low-carbon hydrogen continues to grow. But the question remains, where and how can hydrogen be deployed and at what pace? Hydrogen will play a critical role in delivering net-zero targets, and it'll provide exciting opportunities for businesses and investors. On the 20th of September, industry leaders and analysts will be meeting at the Hilton London Tower Bridge for the second edition of Wood Mackenzie's Hydrogen Conference. It's your chance to discuss the key trends in the industry with thought leaders and to explore the opportunities and challenges for low-carbon hydrogen. If you're interested in speaking, sponsoring or attending, go to woodmac.com events to find out more. Hello and welcome to The Energy Gang, a discussion show about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Ed Crooks. On the show today, we're going to be talking about investing in the energy transition. It's just over a year since President Joe Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act into law, and that act is one of the biggest packages to support low-carbon energy seen anywhere in the world ever. It could ultimately lead to trillions of dollars worth of help for low-carbon energy in the US. But one year on, if you're working for or investing in many of those clean energy companies, it doesn't exactly feel that way. So to discuss what's going on, I'm joined today by two of the Energy Gang's resident experts on investing. Shanu Matthew is a portfolio manager and research analyst at Lazard Investment Management. Hi, Shanu. Great to have you back. Hi, Ed. Thanks for having me on. And it's also a pleasure to welcome back Amy Wise Jaffe, who's the director of the Energy, Climate Justice and Sustainability Lab at New York University. Hi, Amy. How are you? Uh, great now, Ed, uh, and, and glad to be here. Yes, you had COVID, right? I did. I had, you know, people are talking about this new variant of COVID and they're making it sound very mild. And uh, I'm here to tell you it's not a mild variant. It was a really bad week. Glad to be on the other side of it, but now having to rethink this whole, you know, can I walk through an airport without a mask thing? Because I don't want to have that happen again. It was not pleasant. Yeah, that sounds really rough. Well, look, very glad you're better and uh, uh, great you're able to join us today. So, as I was saying, we're going to be talking about investing in energy and what's been happening to energy companies in quite a broad way on the show today. But I want to start off with a specific industry, a specific sector, which is solar power. There's now quite a few solar power companies that are listed on US stock markets, but they've been having really quite a rough ride in recent weeks. Uh, Companies including First Solar, Sunrun, SunPower, Sunova, quite a few names you'll probably know, have all been hit. And in a way, it's surprising because this is happening at a time when the solar industry overall seems to have been doing really well in the US, apart from that big boost from the Inflation Reduction Act I was just talking about. Um, there's been a very strong rate of installations, new installations in total in the US solar industry hit a record high in the first quarter of the year. And I was just looking at our forecasts of Wood Mackenzie that we put out, and we're showing expected steady growth in solar installations in the US for the next five years at least. So, Shallow, maybe start with you on this. What's been going on? Why have the stock markets apparently taken against these solar companies? I'll begin by just taking a little step back just for the audience to help navigate the solar landscape. And so, you know, there's differences across regions, as you mentioned, we'll we'll start with the US here, um, but also difference across markets. So the solar market can broadly be split into three different categories, and that's 
residential, um, which is you know rooftop solar for people's homes. You have commercial and industrial, which is solar systems for businesses, and then you have utility scale, which is solar you know installations that power hundreds to thousands of homes, depending on the size. And so, some of the markets that we're talking about are you know specific to one or the other, um, and namely right now, a lot of the names you mentioned were exposed to the residential solar segment. So, meaning that they sell solar systems or uh, equipment or are the installers and distributors of systems that go on to people's rooftop homes. What's happening now in, in the industry is we went from two years or, or you know multiple years of really solid growth. The last two years was you know upwards of forty percent, depending on the numbers you were using, um, into a period where we might see flat to down growth. And, and so you know what's mainly happening here is uh, a proliferation of a few things, but namely two. And one is higher interest rates as a result of you know the the, the federal policy going on in the United States um, and in, for most parts of the globe as well as a change in regulatory mechanisms that compensate solar system owners. And that's predominantly called net metering. And so what net metering is, is when you're compensated by your utility for generating solar power on your your home, it's used to incentivize people to get solar. Um, A major change happened in the California market, which is roughly 35 to 40% of the US residential market, um, where they changed the incentive scheme to favor solar plus storage and less so just solar only. Um, But that also changes the dynamic around overall installations because getting solar plus storage on your home installed is a lot more expensive than just solar. And so what we're seeing here is the ramifications of that change in the California market, which is the biggest in the US, um, as well as this higher interest rate environment where, you know, now a solar system on your house may cost, you know, five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars more, depending on the different, you know, unique specifications for your home. And so what happened here for a lot of companies is the demand environment looks a lot different is what we're talking about. So if you marry the demand picture with what happened with supply in the past few years, given that strong installation um, environment, as well as supply chain woes from COVID, you had a lot of companies, um, you know, pull forward demand or order a lot more product. And that's namely because it would take a really long time to get the appropriate inventory or components necessary to meet the insatiable demand you saw in the US and Europe um, as a result of different factors and et cetera. And so what you had now is as demand is slowing down due to some of those factors that we talked about, you have a glut of supply um, because you're not working through it nearly as quickly. And now that supply chains are normalizing, products that previously took four months to get, you can get in seven days. You have a lot of your channel partners, so your distributors, installers, uh, ordering a lot less product. And so that's what we saw flow through happen in the second quarter earnings for a lot of these residential solar companies. You're seeing you know, the order patterns in the second half of the year look a lot less strong than they did in the first half of this year, and especially so to last year. Um, and so the outlook now, you know, I think a lot of folks went into the year thinking residential solar might grow five to 15%. Uh, you know, a lot of folks are now saying it might be 0% or it might be down this year and next. And so when you have a lot of these high growth, fast growing solar companies that previously were, you know, talking about 20, 30% top line growth, entering a period where the industry is in potentially uh, a, a period of softness, uh, that dramatically changes the, the growth outlook for these businesses. So I, I thought you saw some pretty wild gyrations in the stock prices for a lot of these names. I mean, talking, some names were down 30% in a month. Some were even more than that. Um, year to date, you know, some are down 40, 50, 60%. Um, and so I think a lot of folks are just trying to get their heads around what does the future demand environment look like for these businesses? And then also, you know, can they actually have a high degree of certainty or visibility around that, which at the current point doesn't seems a little bit weak. And so I'll pause there to see if there's any, uh, you know, questions there that you have, but that's kind of the general state of affairs and some of the names that you mentioned. Yeah. So that's something which I hadn't really thought about, but of course, 
I should have done. And I'm now kicking myself because I've been thinking about maybe uh, getting a residential solar system. And I clearly should have thought about that two years ago before interest rates went up such a lot. But as you say, for some of those increases, then, you know, the cost of a solar system are pretty eye-watering. And it's a kind of truism, something we often say, crucial uh, raw material for renewable energy is money. Cost of that money has gone up a lot. And that's really uh, creating a problem. That is, I mean, it's interesting hearing you talking about it in terms of the impact on the industry, obviously very important for the industry. I'm also thinking about that very directly in terms of my own home, which is uh, something I should have been sharper on. So, so just to point out, though, you know, these these factors that Sean is discussing are, you know, seem very, very present and omnipresent in, in the way investors are thinking, you know, this week. But, you know, when you talk to people in the solar industry, you know, I, I said, oh, you know, we're doing energy gang on solar. You know, what are you seeing? And, and people said, oh, are you going to talk about the solar coaster, um, which is how the industry characterizes itself? And, and, you know, this has been an industry that's had these sort of big swings up and down, even though the sort of outlook trajectory is actually pretty positive. You know, when you look at, you know, electrification projections and the projections for solar, you know, not only in the United States, but in countries that are trying to prioritize it, like India and China and, and Europe in light of the Russia natural gas problem. So, but you get these volatility where companies keep trying to change their strategies. And, and I think it goes beyond different parts of the sector. It's like, is a company vertically integrated? You know, you've got a company like First Solar that's, you know, kind of like has longevity uh, based on its, you know, focus on manufacturing. Um, you know, they were like uh, in May, they were like a, a great, you know, buy because they were going to open a factory in India. And that seemed very promising on top of the fact that they had, you know, uh, they're adding a fifth factory in the United States based on the, you know, IRA. But their stock, I think, is pretty illustrative. Um, and just, you know, Amshano gave us a really good view of the, you know, current state of affairs. But First Solar stock was valued in the $40 range in 2018. And then in 2020, it went down to $34. Um, and then we had this giant bubble in 2021 where every investor in the world wanted to own some kind of a climate forward ESG type index and companies like First Solar and Tesla were like the big anchors for those kind of indexes. So they got a big influx of interest. And then just to give you an idea, in May, with all these announcements of new factories, you know, first solar stock hit $231. Um, and now it's 178. So, you know, that's why I talk about the solar coaster sort of in the broader perspective. It's like if you're an investor um, and you're going to like invest in solar because you believe in it, uh, you know, what's your stomach for the volatility uh, in, in these markets, you know, on a in a particular month? Like you have to really, I think, take the long view uh, for some of these uh, uh, shares. And just to add on to that a little bit, I think Amy brought up a really good point is just that the, even the differences between the, the markets themselves, right? So the commercial and industrial outlook, it looks a little bit better in Europe and in the US and the utility scale actually looks quite good this year in the US. I think people are forecasting 60% 
year over year growth. Um, and that's namely because of a few different headwinds that are passing that are more regulatory in nature, mainly the Uyghur Forced Labor Protection uh, Prevention Act, as well as the DOC anti-circumvention decision, which came out this week, um, which were overhangs on the industry that are, are, are now away. And so some of those stocks actually have done uh, a lot better this year um, and relatively, um, you know, or actually up on the year. And that, you know, that includes trackers that are, you know, over lever to the utility scale of solar, as well as, you know, modules that go to those, the different markets. And so I think you bring up a really good point where, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to always say like, you know, entire sector is out of favor or bad, but the, I think you just have to be, investors are starting to realize that you need to be really more selective about how you're approaching these different industries. And that, you know, even on the given month or the quarter or the year, the outlook can be drastically different for these different, you know, verticals within each market. And I think in the solar industry and, you know, in clean tech in general, you know, uh, people need to be, I think, in the end, more sophisticated. So sometimes, you know, in 2021, there was just this sort of blanket love for clean energy stocks. Um, but I, I think in the end, what we're going to have going forward is you have to really look at management and execution in these companies, um, because that's made a huge difference differentiating uh you know, where you are in the supply chain, where you are in the vertical, what is your strategy? Can you execute uh, well and meet your projected quarterly uh, revenue? Uh, these are all questions that maybe the solar industry and the clean tech industry in general, you had these periods where they got a free pass. Um, and now people are going to have to really look more critically at the managements and strategy and and see if these companies are going to be able to perform, um, not just because they're a solar company and I'm buying solar companies, but as an individual company. Okay. So what's your long-term view then? So we're on this solar coaster and it's going up and down uh, through these cycles. And as you're suggesting, it always has done that, probably always will. But in general, it's still on an upward slope, is it? Is that right? Shana, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, in general, again, these are personal views, but I think if you look at the longer term, you know, beyond the next 12, 24 months, uh, you know, the, the prospects for solar are still quite strong, in my opinion. And it's largely because, you know, solar produces some of the cheapest electricity in the world and in, in, in the history of the world uh, as well. And so as you have the different input costs that, that, Build up to your solar system cost, whether it's you know polysilicon currently right now it's, it's like record lows or at least um, at least relative to the year. Um, different input costs around labor and permitting that should in theory come down as regulatory mechanisms kind of work their way through and figure out the optimal solutions. Um, I think net net you still have really strong secular momentum for solar, and that, that's even before all the decarbonization policies and objectives that um, consumers and governments and businesses are all focused on. Um, but I do think, you know, to Amy's point, we we have to get to this point of execution, right? I mean, like anything else, it's an industry that's ruled by economics. And so you need economies of scale for certain players. You need to identify attractive verticals. Um, there's going to be players that go out of business um, in this current period. Um, and at the end of the day, too, I think the macro cycle just ultimately will influence the growth rate, right? So, I mean, if in a business that you need access to the capital markets, um, so, which means, you know, you need loans, whether you're the consumer or if you need access to working capital as an installer distributor, um, you know, what happens with rates and the overall general macroeconomic cycle um, is going to impact the growth of the industry. And so I think net-net, I'm still very favorable on it, right? Just due to the prospects that I mentioned. Um, I think it's just a matter of being more selective about the pockets that you get involved with and also understanding the nuances, you know, of demand and supply or at least, you Know, availability of financing that will impact the market in the near term. But I think for investors, you know, a lot of what they're trying to decide is 
you know, in 12 years from now, or sorry, 12, 12 months from now, or 24 months from now, do I think the fundamental view of the company has changed? Do I think my thesis has broken in terms of why this company has a sustainable competitive advantage? Or is it a temporary issue due to external factors or extraneous events that, you know, can be controllable or can change um, over the course of, you know, the next one to two years? And I think that's the question that most folks are asking. And, and I think the higher conviction level you have on those things being temporary versus permanent, the more favorable you are in the industry. If you think that, you know, things are going to change dramatically, you might be a little bit more bearish. Well, and I, I think for the U.S. sector, you know, a big factor, which is a big, you know, I think an unknown yet still, is how does this sort of transferability of tax credit? So I, I don't have to find, you know, a financial institution that got some giant tax liability and 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 get them to take, a, you know, an equity an equity stake and do all these, you know, machinations to set this deal up. Um, now, you know, I'm going to have supposedly bigger players that can, you know, uh, uh, trade in um, these tax credits, but there's still like a limited number of players. I mean, the banks, I, I know from when I worked uh, in the pension world, you know, people are always looking at for transactions that are like $100 million in scale, right? And so, you know, some people are projecting that, you know, we're going to double or triple the amount of volume we're going to have at the utility scale because of this transferability of tax credits. But, you know, I think the jury's still kind of out on that. Um, and then the administration, the Biden administration is trying to push this new procedure of direct pay. So if I'm a community aggregator uh, or a rural cooperative, you know, I can set up my investment and I can show what I would have used as a tax credit and the government will literally give me that money directly and so I don't have to give up equity uh, in my project um, to get that finance. And we, we're we just starting to see those rules come out of Treasury, and we don't know what that activity is going to look like. Right. No, that's a great point. That definitely is going to be something important to watch for. Going back to, to Shani's point then, Amy, when he talks about the view that people have, whether you're going to see these troubles that we're seeing at the moment as temporary or maybe indicative of something longer lasting. Where do you come out on that? Do you still think long-term the solar future is bright? Well, I, I do think the long-term trajectory is bright, but I, I have to tell you, I've been doing some work with a colleague at Rice University, and what we're finding is that uh, the investment cycle for clean tech, for solar and so forth, is 100% as cyclical uh, connected to the oil price as you know buying the stock of a shale company. You know, we're, we're finding this real correlation between the volatility um, in oil prices and uh, the sort of outcomes for these sectors where it's a boom when oil prices are high. And then if oil prices go down, you know, there's the same uh, calamity across both sectors. Um, and so I, I do think that, you know, I, I don't see a change in the solar coaster. I think there are a lot of people who are moving from one entity to another and then they're back in a different entity. And, you know, it, it, I, I think that, um, you know, the way the sector has been set up and the way stocks get inflated and deflated, I, I just think, you know, makes the whole progression of how fast we need to go and how much interest there is in, in the technology itself or the technology combined with batteries. I just think it's going to be fits and starts. 
just to add on too, I think there's a few factors that are hard to have visibility on now, but that can materially influence the direction, right? Is uh, I think Amy just alluded to the, the cost of storage, which obviously like if th that falls precipitously, I think that makes, you know, the attractive or penetration rate of solar increasing. And then also, I mean, you know, I think it's hard to not look at electricity prices across the U.S. and the, and the rate that which they're inflating at, because that also influences your payback period on solar, um, as well as grid instability events, which I think we continue to see here just due to weather or other issues. Um, but that, you know, th that, those types of things influence buyers or it can, it can materially influence how you look at this decision um, to go solar or not. Um, and I think, you know, as we get more data points there, that, that they may or may not accelerate or decelerate the overall penetration rate in the future. Yeah, that grid instability point is a really interesting one. Certainly, I was just reading uh, people talking about what's going on in Texas right now, where uh, demand has been absolutely through the roof, shattering records, um, in part because of very high temperatures and everyone running the air conditioning very hard. And I saw people making the point that solar power has been absolutely crucial to maintaining grid stability in Texas this summer it's been very, very reliable output. It's been there all the time, something that people have been absolutely able to depend on during daylight hours, of course. Um, and so that is a critical role for it. And certainly, I'm sure, something that people are going to be learning from in terms of the importance of solar in the right places in order to support the grid. And as you say, that certainly looks like going to be one of the factors that's going to continue to support demand. You've just mentioned storage, and I want to move on to another sector which has also seen a bit of turbulence in recent weeks, and it's connected to energy storage and also EVs. And it's this question of this electric bus company, Proterra, which was much lauded by the Biden administration, I think a couple of years back, I think this was sort of during COVID when they weren't doing um, physical tours, but the Biden administration conducted a virtual tour around the Proterra facility, and it was meant to be a very exciting prospect in terms of developing US manufacturing capability in EVs. And aside, I think the administration used expression about kind of getting us in the game here in terms of building electric buses in the US. And um, a couple of weeks ago, it was announced that Proterra was going bankrupt. It's gone into Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. So, Shelley, perhaps tell us a little bit about the story there. What went wrong at Proterra? What's happened to them? Definitely. So, yeah, Proterra was founded in in the, in the early two thousands, I believe. So it was almost a nearly two decade company by the time um, it, it filed bankruptcy. And and as you alluded to, it was it was always considered a sustainability darling in the sense of it created this you know fantastic um, and I guess well regarded electric bus product. Um, so it was a OEM or original equipment manufacturer of that product. Um, and it actually had, you know, considerable partnerships with various um, domestic brands or, or companies that are that are big in, in that space. And over time, the company started to expand into other verticals as it was trying to, you know, match its growth trajectory that the investors were giving it, um, which included battery, uh, drivetrain and, and fleet charging solutions for, you know, heavy duty type fleets. Um, and namely, again, with this bus focus or commercial heavy duty vehicle type focus. Um, and I think one of the issues that you saw with a business like this is, um, you know, at the end of the day, electric vehicles, I think people forget sometimes, you know, there, there's a, there is a slam dunk use case. Um, you know, they are, you know, I'd argue, you know, better products in a lot of ways, depending on the use case. Um, but these are really capital intensive businesses, right? Car businesses have always been an economies of scale type business. Um, so you need to have considerable scale in order to generate, you know, pretty 
low margins, but you do so at a high volume. And so, I mean, you look at most like the automakers, I mean, we're at like single digit operating margins. Um, and so the issue you have with Proterra was, you know, there's a company that was growing really fast, trying to go into all these new verticals, but was still not making money uh, on, on, the, on the products it was selling. I mean, you know, it was a negative gross margin business, um, negative EBITDA margin business, which obviously is intuitive. But um, what that means is that as you continue to grow, you're losing money and you're burning cash. And so you're consistently in this cycle where, you either need to raise more money um, in order to keep running operations, or you need to really clamp down on costs in order to generate a profit. And I think Proterra got caught in the cycle where we continue to grow really quickly. It ultimately went public via SPAC, which is Special Purpose Acquisition uh, Corporation, which is just basically an alternative way to go public. Um, and it just caught in this growth cycle where it continually tried to hit the next benchmark or hit the next valuation, um, but necessarily never fixed the the model here, which is a, you know, a high upfront cash capital intensive business model that operates at low margins. And even when you look at the kind of businesses it was expanding into, batteries ultimately um, be- become a commoditized low margin product as well. And so I think that the business just ultimately face its reality in the sense of, you know, it's a brutally competitive industry. It's an economy, it's a scale one, um, and it needed a lot of capital in order to prove out the model. The other thing that I'd mentioned too, is even though the electric bus market outside of China um, was attractive and they, you know, I think they had something like 50% plus market share in that, 80% of electric buses are sold in China. And, and the market leader there was BYD, who is, is, a, is a much, much bigger competitor with much more uh, bigger coffers in terms of financial wherewithal to you know, manage up and down cycles, as well as invest back in the business. And so I think it's a, you know, a cautionary tale in the sense of ultimately needing to prove out your unit economics, um, be able to show that you can you know, methodically scale into, into the corporation as well as attack a market that you have a unique cost competitive advantage in and can take share from other competitors across all, all markets. Um, and and so I think you know that's namely what happened here, and you know it's unfortunate given that electric buses seem to be finally kind of hitting an inflection point where a lot of organizations want to move over to that solution, um, and we just lost you know potentially one of our strongest domestic competitors within that space. So so I I think we also have to like analyze the SPAC's shortcut. And sorry, just to refresh our memory on this, what is a SPAC? Yeah, I'm happy to take that one, Ed. So a SPAC is a special purpose acquisition corporation, and it's basically an alternative mechanism to enter the public markets. And it's basically where an investor or a group of investors will raise money for what's called a blank check corporation um, with with the intention of acquiring a company within a certain vertical where they have expertise or you know a unique ability to secure access to a company that's you know has attractive end prospects. Um, and so what they do is they go raise a bunch of money and then eventually find a target within a two-year period. Um, and then ultimately the the shareholders of the SPAC get to vote whether they want to close or consummate the transaction or not. Um, it's an interesting model because you know a lot of times it, the the transactions raised in in order just with faith in the investor or the group of investors to find a good target, but there are these weird incentives where the investor that brings a respect transaction gets paid promote is what they call it, which is you know a certain number of shares of the eventual company that goes public, um, as well as the fact that they have this two year timeline where if they don't get an acquisition they have to give the money back. So you know some would argue that who are bearish that you know that creates these weak incentives in the sense of you, you have a lot of intention to 
quote unquote, pump and dump a lot of these names, meaning that, you know, you have this initial period, we need to create a bunch of excitement for a company or an acquisition, you get paid as a part of that transaction. And so you're, you know, all the prospects for the business look really, really great for the first 18 months. And then once you're able to sell your shares, all of a sudden reality sets in. And I think what Amy was alluding to is a lot of these EV companies that may have gone this route, you oftentimes saw, you know, multi-billion dollar valuations assigned to them when they haven't ever shipped ever a product. Um, and, and if you ask like, why does that happen in a SPAC and not in a traditional IPO in a SPAC, you can show forward estimates on what you think the business can do. And again, it created this incentive to really overpromise what you could do from a production and revenue standpoint. For the listeners, just to be clear, you know, when you're doing an initial public offering, you know, there's lawyers involved, there's due diligence, you know, you can't make, you know, irresponsible, you know, investment statements. Um, and I'm not saying that people with the SPACs. Uh, are being irresponsible, but there there is this incentive um, because you're you're doing this black blank check thing, and and at a launch, you know these spacs have a certain value. They va- they get launched at a certain value. Sometimes you know everything that was, in my opinion, launched in 2021 had like an ex- extra speculative up uptick. There were 613 spac deals launched in 2021. Not all of them were clean tech, but a lot of them were. Now, 78 of those are trading at below $2 a share. And, but the people who did the, the promotion and, and, and underwrote uh, the offerings, uh, those guys made $5 billion in fees in one year, say 2020, which is the year people have data for. And that's been like a subject for Elizabeth Warren, which is, you know, uh, she's targeting these SPACs organizers and saying that, you know, they suckered in retail investors. So by the time, you know, the offering was on the market, those guys were already getting out, you know, and, and taking their money out. And then all of a sudden, like you're saying, you're left with these companies and a lot of EV companies in charging station companies, but it was highly uh, a, a process for EV companies in the last two, two three years. And, Proterra is not the only bankruptcy, and there are several companies that are trading at this, you know, $2 a share thing. You got Fisker, Canoe, Nicola, Lucid, uh, Faraday, uh, Lordstown's already bankrupt. So, you know, Proterra is sort of more disappointing because it was, you know, part of this new United States manufacturing and going to compete with the BYD. The reality is it took Tesla uh, from their first car in 2009 to the scale up of 2020 uh, to turn, uh, you know, a profit. And uh, and I'll, I might argue they're still struggling a little bit with their, you know, quarter by quarter performance. And, and, and you know, you've got the deep pockets like Ford. Ford announced they're expected to lose $3 billion in 2023 in their EV division. Um, and they think that by, you know, 25, 2025, 2026, you know, they'll be making money uh, with EVs. So it's a tough sector. And the SPAC community, you know, suck people into the frenzy in, you know, 2020, 2021. Um, and then, you know, reality is now hitting about how hard a business it is um, to get a independent EV company off the ground. So if you take a step back then, and look at what's been going on. As you say, even these big companies, the, the Fords of this world, uh, losing large amounts of money in EVs. When you think about 
why are EVs going to grow? It seems like the main reason is because the auto industry has now decided that they're going to grow and they are going to be what we're all driving in the 2030s and beyond. And yet we do seem to be having this significant amount of turbulence, whatever you want to call it, these teething problems that seem pretty significant right now. Shadi, what's your view on this? When you look at the EV future, do you think we're kind of still on track? Are we on the right path to get to that future of the automakers think we're going to? Or are there some pretty significant uh, problems starting to emerge here? Completely agree. I mean, I think people are just realizing that the you know, the linear trajectory or, you know, the parabolic trajectory is is not as smooth as the charts always make it seem. Um, and there are going to be a lot of puts and starts. And so, you know, we talked a little bit about the OEMs. I mean, you're seeing some some of them walk back their EV sales targets now um, just to make just to maybe not define them as, as quickly as they previously did or outlined. Um, and then, you know, some are taking a portfolio approach and offering still, you know, hybrid vehicles or, or ICE engines. I mean, I think the interesting part for me and from an investing standpoint is is that you know it's really hard to determine what business model wins out right now i mean if you look at what some of the ev leaders are today whether it's you know tesla byd these are upstarts that we're going to you know focus more on electric vehicles as, a, as a, their primary source of production um but in five, 10 years from now, you know, the OEMs, will they catch up or will they not catch up? Um, and what's their ability to do so, right? And I think there's a, a variety of approaches being taken right now. You know, some people are taking JVs with different battery makers from Asia that are a lot more, you know, have a lot more expertise in that. Some are trying to vertically integrate more. Um, and it's a really challenging proposition because, again, with with a business this brutally competitive and and as low margin as it is and as, as much scale as you need, um, the decisions you make now are going to really determine how you compound your capital over the next five to 10 years. And so I think it adds a lot more questions than it does answers. I mean, I think everyone knows the pace of travel. And if you look at the CapEx plans of most of the auto giants, whether they're upstarts or incumbents, um, we are moving to an electric future. But I think you know, the path at which we get there, or maybe like, you know, the the year to year volatility may be greater than previously anticipated, um, just due to inflationary costs or, or supply chain woes or, or a whole other host of issues. But um, I think net net, we still end up in an electric future. It's just it, who wins that proposition is, is totally up in the air right now. So take a step back then, and think about the energy transition overall. I like what you said there, you just made that point about it being sort of jagged rather than smooth. And I think that's absolutely right. I think when you think about a lot of the forecasts that are out there, people show this kind of smooth transition away from internal combustion engine vehicles towards electric vehicles or away from fossil fuels and towards wind and solar power. But actually, uh, the transition is not going to be smooth. It's going to be fits and starts. There's, it's going to be jagged. There's going to be uh, periods where it apparently grinds to a halt, there's going to be periods when it makes very rapid progress. Talking about another sector experiencing problems, um, we just, uh, McKenzie published a big report on offshore wind, and there's a whole load of issues there. Title of the report is Cross Currents, and it's talking about all the issues that are challenging offshore wind at the moment in particular because of um, capacity problems in the supply chain and how the cost of everything is rising for offshore wind. So there you go, that's another sector apart from solar and, and EVs that we've been talking about, where it's clear there are some problems at the moment and the pace of growth may not be as fast as people would like. Put that together, when you think about where we're going and when you think about what the energy transition is happening at all, right? what the crucial driver is 
for a lot of what's going on is the fight to address climate change and the need to shift to a lower carbon energy system overall if we are to avoid really catastrophic outcomes for the climate. Does this make you worried that we're not actually going to make changes at the pace we need to, that because of this kind of stop-start kind of issue that we've got in the energy system, we just can't transform everything we do as quickly as we need to. Amy, what's your view on that? Is this a worry for you? Is this something you're concerned about? Yeah, it is something I'm worried about. And, you know, I mentioned before, and, and I think Shano agrees with me. So one of the things that really bothers me, Ed, about this whole question of how fast can we go in the transition is you've got these sort of false distinctions. Uh, you know, you got a, a, a big giant uh, integrated energy company uh, saying that uh, they can make 17 or 20 percent uh, rate of return on an oil and gas project. So they just can't accept, you know, a seven or 10 percent return on a renewable energy project. When in the end, those oil and gas projects have never actually achieved those IRR numbers. Right. And so it's just a bias. And uh, in anything, you know, if you if you can really manage execution risk, you know, whether it's an oil field in Guyana or an offshore wind farm or utility scale solar and battery installation somewhere, um, you know, it, it's about execution. And if a company's bad at oil and gas execution, they're probably going to be bad at renewables execution. And if they're good at execution and in some, you know, in some sector and they move to another sector, they're probably going to, you know, they're a well-managed company. Uh, they're probably good at execution. And, you know, that same thing with startup culture. Like how many stories do we know where the founder of a company is eventually thrown out and they bring in an executive uh, to do the execution, right? So I really do feel like um, as investors and governments, you know, look across how to get um, successful companies across the finish line and scaling. Um, it's really about uh, people and uh, having the best uh, management teams and implementers uh, in this space. Yeah, I think it's a great question. I, I, I'd echo a lot of what Amy says. I, I think there's a false pretense where you know it's things aren't moving quick enough, and then that means we're all doomed and and things. Like, I mean the right solution, right, is getting these things to scale and ability to self-sustain themselves um, as quickly as possible. And I think what we're learning about with these fits and starts is at the end of the day, the economic reality of the situation is going to drive the outcomes more so than, I guess, the priority to decarbonize um, or, you know, people's view of sustainability as a priority amongst other things. Um, and, and so I think what folks forget sometimes is that, you know, at the end of the day, right, we need to have these things scale. We need to have these things make economic sense. We need to have them be able to grow into markets um, at the right time in order for them to work. And, and, and we have spent a lot of time kind of talking about some of the secular challenges. I mean, let's not forget that there are a lot of positive indicators as well. I mean, if you look across uh, HVAC or um, uh, industry, semiconductors, um, electrical equipment, I mean, some of these sectors, it's mostly incumbent businesses, but that have exposure to the sustainability, decarbonization, electrification angle of their businesses are actually seeing really, really strong growth amidst what's typical cyclical weakness across the rest of their peer group. Um, and, and so I think that, you know, there are pockets of really strong momentum. And, you know, we talked about some of the regulatory mechanisms in place by the Biden administration. 
the White House government has it pegged at $500 billion of new investment across chips, uh, like 200 billion of clean energy. We'll see how much of all that gets built. But again, we need to remember that like, you know, we are ultimately moving in the right direction. It's just a matter of, as Amy said, who can execute the most effectively and efficiently in order to self-sustain itself so that, you know, you don't need regulatory mechanisms that you don't need to have any type of, I guess, um, preferential bias in order to win out as a technology is hey, this business wins because it executes the best. It has the superior technology and it does so at cost parity or cost competitiveness. And I think that's ultimately where we'll ultimately end up. And, you know, the sooner that we get there, the better, but there is no, I guess, alternative solution of, of not getting there on those terms. I mean, if, if something's not economic reality or doesn't, you know, make sense on any of those dynamic or, or, or metrics, then it likely won't win out as a long-term solution. And I think we need to kind of remember that. Yeah, that is a fantastic point. Now, I want to end by talking about another issue in investing, which has been massively topical and makes really important and relevant to this whole discussion we've just been having, which is the question of ESG investing. ESG, the investment strategy that dare not speak its name. It seems like that's something which was uh, super fashionable very recently and has now gone out of fashion. I was trying to think of an analogy. The one I went for was it's gone out of fashion as rapidly as stonewashed denim, which I feel like I'm probably not hip enough to have a more up-to-date fashion reference. But insert your own uh, fleeting trend here. It kind of feels like ESG, in other words, uh, environmental, social and governance factors being used in investing, have been on a rising trend, absolutely boomed in 2021. Since then, there has been this very sharp slowdown. Various things are going on there. Clearly, there has been um, this strong political backlash. Many Republican politicians have been speaking out in a very sort of targeted, focused way against ESG strategies. I think it's also fair to say that um, ESG funds have not been outperforming um, recently, and some of the claims that were made for uh, the likely outperformance of ESG-focused funds has um some of the claims have very much been called into question. And just looking at the numbers, there's some good uh, data here from Morningstar, who said that, for instance, there were 121 uh, sustainable funds, ESG-focused and similar kinds of strategy. 121 of those funds launched in 2021, and that dropped to 87 in 2022. So a significant slowdown there already. And I suspect when we look at the numbers, we will see a further slowdown in 2023. So, Charlotte, what's your view on what's happening here? Is ESG investing going away? I don't think ESG investing is going away, per se. Um, I think the terminology that's used has been heavily politicized and, and weaponized, um, both by advocates and, and opponents. And I think we'll see the terminology use change quite rapidly. But <clears throat> I think at the end of the day, if we step back right here, again, I feel like I sometimes I'm um, beating a dead horse, so apologies if, if you've heard me say this one too many times, but you know, ESG isn't an ideology. It's it's an investment toolkit. It's it's pretty much just the appreciation that there's non-financial factors that can influence business performance. And and that's relatively intuitive, right? If, we're, if I remove the word ESG and you think that you know if there's environmental issues that impact you as an energy company, that's a relatively intuitive and straightforward proposition, correct? And so I think it's it it has become a little bit of its own um i guess you know war zone here if you will um and i think one of the best ways that tells it there was recently a survey done on the bloomberg terminal of 300 terminal users and two thirds of them said that they're going to stop using esg because it just alienates clients and it creates too much conflict 
but they still plan on using and incorporating ESG metrics into how they analyze companies and how they operate the business. And and if you think of what's happening at corporations or consultancies or you know the big four accounting firms, I mean, you continually see people reiterating their commitment to ESG objectives um, and or you know whether that's stakeholder um, treatment, uh, whether it's different environmental policies and setting like science-based targets, whether it's, you know, the governance practices and ensuring that they're best practice. Um, at the end of the day, I think so long as you were using ESG as an application of analysis to generate better investment returns, you were acting with a fiduciary duty and, and delivering the result that your client expects. Um, so I think, you know, what will likely happen is people will step back from the terminology, given that it has become a political hot button issue, but are going to figure out ways to apply this in, in the right way. And and I think the industry just grew too quickly. And and, and to its credit, right, I just didn't have the appropriate guardrail. So I think a lot of times opponents, you know, I, I think they do have merit, right? There are a lot of investment managers that just relabeled funds or, or just, you know, overstated what they can do or overstated the impact of ESG funds. And that's when you do get it, it confused, where it's like, I thought a second ago, you're telling me ESG is just an investment toolkit. And then now you're telling me that it's also going to save the world. And I think that, you know, that's confusing to consumers, it's confusing to politicians and regulators. And so I think what you're seeing here is the natural maturation of the industry, where we're starting to define these terms a lot more holistically and saying, okay, if you're going to say that, yeah, you know, do you have a sustainable investing fund? Do you have an impact fund that's different than an ESG fund? If you're going to have ESG in the label, like what's the actual process? How are you measuring it? Are you transparent about the metrics that you're using? And I think that we'll ultimately get there and you're sort of already seeing the bifurcation where some of the firms that may not have been serious about this uh, as a topic or as an approach to investing as a way to enhance returns are already stepping back investment. They're getting rid of staff. They may not be, they may be relabeling their funds back to non-ESG. Um, and then other firms that are leading more into it, but maybe, you know, relabeling things just to avoid the alienation. Um, and the only one point that I'd mentioned too is on performance and flows, I, there there is this like categorization where a lot of times I think you see the, the headlines a lot, but performance, I think it depends on how you label the ESG fund, how you're measuring like good versus bad ESG scores and then the time horizon, right? For the long for a long time, long tech short energy was like the trade that a lot of ESG funds had and that worked up until, you know, the Russia energy crisis uh, or Russia Ukraine energy crisis and then all of a sudden energy really outperformed. And so that that reverses it. So do you include the 2021 year? Do you not? Uh, that in dramatically influences the result of the study. And then from a flow perspective, I think most people are actually shocked that ESG funds have actually outperformed non-ESG funds from a flow perspective. So they're, like, they're negative uh, for both, but much less so for ESG funds versus non-ESG funds. And I think sometimes you get lost in the headlines again, just because it became such a political hot button issue. But in general, you know, the data would tell you something else. So I think that, you know, we need to make a distinction between the metrics and some firm's implementation. So, you know, uh, some of the sort of, you know, business academic literature has kind of showed that there were firms that offered these ESG products um, and they aggregated everything. You know, they aggregated climate risk, they aggregated social uh, uh, and labor risk, they aggregated uh, 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 inclusion and other kinds of performance metrics and taken as individual metrics um, for performance, you know, I mean, climate risk, you know, we have yet another utility in Hawaii going, you know, going to declare bankruptcy, right, because of climate risk. So, um, so the climate risk literature is very clear, you know, for insurers, for uh, municipal bonds, um, for corporate performance, climate risk can be really material. But when you then throw that in with a bunch of other stuff and you have some 
Shoals black box and then you give me a score, you know, 3.2 versus 4.1 versus whatever, uh, the academic literature show that those scores um, not only, you know, are, are haven't proven to be highly meaningful, um, but in some cases, um, they haven't even matched the environmental performance of the companies they, you know, supposedly are measuring. Uh, and these benchmarks, you know, create, as Shanu said, you know, the academics have kind of showed it, created like confusion in the market about valuation. And of course, that's, you know, bad for investors. But there are hedge funds that created funds that just buy and sell companies based on their ESG headlines, you know, the Volkswagen scandal or, you know, governance problems at some of the tech firms um, and, and, and things like that. And those strategies where you're looking at individual companies and assessing uh, ESG going long or short uh, as an active investor, uh, that's been a big payout. And it's led to, you know, services like Refinitiv and, and other kind of companies that actually give you the data the underlying data on um, on these metrics as they pertain to particular businesses. You know, when I was at University of California working in the investment office uh, as an advisor, uh, one of the things that struck me the most was that these ESG metrics were really, really important for evaluating risks for fixed income uh, 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 securities and was really important for evaluating what we call real assets investing, where you're actually going to co-invest in a company or you're evaluating the portfolio that a private equity firm is offering you. And if you didn't consider the ESG parts, you could lose a lot of money in those, uh, in those parts of the portfolio, you know, more than just, you know, your stock market where, you know, if you're a big pension fund, you know, you're just owning the whole stock market through an index fund. So really, I feel like there's this baby with the bathwater thing. And in particular, the academic research on the impact of climate risk on investment is hugely substantial. And if we're going to just throw out that risk because somebody made an index like S&P and now they had to cancel that index and they say they're not you know, going to publish it and use it because it wasn't useful enough. That's right, because when you aggregate things, sometimes you wash out the value of the thing. I mean, it's like saying, well, we're not going to do sovereign risk anymore because, you know, some company's index wasn't good or we're not going to look at credit risk. I mean, you know, these risks are real risks. So basically what I'm hearing and what uh, Shelley was saying earlier is it's like Fight Club. The first rule of ESG is you don't talk about ESG, but, but you can still do it. And you should still do it, in fact. Yeah, you should still do it, because if you're not doing it, you're going to lose a lot of money. It's important still to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess, yeah, to, to Amy's point, right, is, is it, maybe not necessarily doing it, but just like executing it and, and, and you know, testing out like hypotheses that allow you to work, right? I think like everyone will apply it in different ways. And ultimately, you know, the, the way that it enhances returns the best is will probably be our at least quantitatively, be the the best approach, but we don't really necessarily know that. And I think Amy's spot on with the throwing the baby out the bathwater. I mean, if you have a few years of you know underperformance from like value investing versus growth investing, you don't just all of a sudden say value investing is no longer like relevant and and, and, and the right way to invest and all these things, right? I think ultimately it just comes down to the application of that and then that, and that philosophy and it's tried and true performance over years, which you know we're in the early days of ESG and and how different managers apply it, but 
I think we keep honing back to like, what's the transparency around it? Are you using this black box number that's produced by an external third party person that you don't even know how it's calculated? Or do you have an, you know, an actual methodical approach to it where you're published and you share with your clients and, and to regulators and everyone else? And I think that's ultimately where we're going to head. Um, it just, you know, will take a little bit as the industry develops. And, and the new relabeling, you know, Ed, you talk about like, are we going to, you know, re- just relabel it? Uh, you know, people are starting to talk about energy transition fund, right? So how do I get um, or climate savvy companies? So you're getting these new funds coming out of, uh, you know, investment aggregators where they're um, talking about how to pick companies that are going to uh, have technologies and strategies that are going to win um, as the energy transition gains momentum. Um, and and that's like the new, the new ESG, right, is, you know, energy transition funds and uh, climate impact funds. Um, and you're seeing a lot of those uh, being launched this year by, you know, big impact uh, uh, investment offerings. And in terms of the capital flows, then, in terms of the money going to where it's needed to invest in low carbon energy, that capital's still flowing, right? I think that capital's still flowing. And, and, and I think that, um, you know, just to harken back, I've been like a broken record. You know, if you're going to invest in that space, um, the same way the venture capital community, you know, is still investing in that space, uh, you really need to know something about execution risk. You need to know that the people who are, you're investing with, uh, whether it's a company or a fund, that they understand this thing we've been talking about throughout the whole show with the fits and starts and that they have an execution strategy that's going to be able to overcome that. And, and then let me just say, because, you know, there's a lot of in the Twitterdom, you know, or Xdom, I guess I have to call it now, you know, there's, there's this bifurcation, you know, uh, uh, and so when you're an energy expert and you look across the, you know, all the sectors, it can be like, you know, what camp are you in? Like, it's not really necessary to be in a camp, you know, one's, one's trying to just comment intelligently. But there was this um, thinking about how the oil industry is investing in oil again, you know, and some people see that as a good thing and some people see that as a really bad thing. And, um, and I'm like, hey, you know, I want to know when I look at a company, your strategy cannot be that you're investing and hoping for a war. Right. Like, you know, for, you know, 15 years, like Exxon made money last year because, you know, Russia uh, had a war with Ukraine. Like, that's not a business strategy. That's just a lucky year. Right. So, you know, when I see um, some of the things that they're thinking about doing now, um, they're making better choices about how to diversify their portfolio and what to go into. You know, things that they chose 10 years ago, you know, were not good choices. Now they're making better choices, you know, of how to position that that business for the future. And, you know, I say to people, you know, if you want to just, you know, uh, defund everybody, I mean, these are the companies that have the capital right now. And, you know, two thirds of climate tech startups are, are winding up with some of that capital. And so really the devil's in the details, and I won't name names, but there's one company out there that's a big oil company that tries to take 1% of some all these different startup companies, and then they want you to sign that you can't 
uh, bring in any new investors unless that company gives a permission. And it's like, uh, it's like, honestly, their strategy sounds evil. It's kind of like, let's see how many startups we can thwart by taking a 1% share. And I was talking to someone from the VC community and they're like, we don't even call them anymore because we just don't want to deal with, you know, the, their sort of deal killer mentality. Um, so it, you know, it varies from company to company, you know, which of the companies are serious and, and who has a strategy and who, who doesn't. But, um, you know, it's like, we've been saying the whole show, I got to look for those managements that have a forward looking vision. Um, and you know, at some point, you know, we do need long-term investors need to move away from quarter to quarter and, and, you know, like in solar, you know, you, you, you got to ride it out because, you know, what's the average over 10 years versus what, you know, what was bad for one quarter. Yeah, that is a great point. Unfortunately, um, talking of the long term, we are going to have to leave it there and postpone further conversation to another show. Just before we go, though, I'd be great to hear your free electrons. You've got um, personal items you've brought in. Uh, Shana, do you have one? Yeah, um, I have two. One's really quick. It was just I'm pl- going to plug Oppenheimer by Christopher Nolan because he's my favorite director. And I, I thought I wasn't a fan of his last two movies, but I thought he was back to form. Uh, those bloody blur- brilliant and the soundtrack's incredible. The other one is is a tweet that I saw yesterday um, from Alex Stapp, who's like a co-founder of Institute for Progress, which is a think tank, which I thought was actually really counterintuitive and surprising. Was that the most stringent environmental review uh, under NEPA, which is kind of the, the regulatory mechanism to block projects for environmental reviews is actually for clean energy projects and that most fossil fuel projects are categorically excluded from those reviews. And just kind of like one of those counterintuitive takeaways where like a lot of what we're blocking actually ends up inhibiting the same projects that we're trying to enable relative to the incumbent industries. And I thought that was like a really interesting takeaway uh, or research that he shared um, that I, I don't think many people know about, but um, I'm happy to send that over to um, if, if you want to see that, but that really shocked me. Yeah, we'd love to see that. Thanks very much indeed. That really does sound fascinating. And that actually is a subject we're going to be dealing with on a future show. Uh, Amy and I have been making plans for that one, thinking about uh, permitting and environmental reviews and their impact on clean energy investment. So that sounds uh, great as uh, something to take a look at. Also, seconded on Oppenheimer. Absolutely loved it. Fantastic film. Really kind of powerful and thought-provoking and sobering. If uh, anyone hasn't seen it yet, I would definitely recommend it. Uh, Amy, what's yours? So my free electron is in the legal sphere. You know, there have been all these lawsuits that have been brought by cities and, and states um, and, and groups uh, against uh, against the oil industry uh, for causing climate change, in effect, and um, and most of the cases so far have been dismissed, uh, but a pretty landmark case happened in Montana last week where our children's top trust, which has been bringing sort of generational lawsuits, um, won in court in Montana, a very conservative state that. Uh, doesn't have a lot of oil and gas production, but does have, you know, 4,000 wells. It's a coal state. Um, And Montana had a unique thing in its constitution. It guarantees its residents, quote, the right to a clean and healthful environment. And uh, that that constitutional clause refers to future generations. Um, And so a court upheld that um, Montana is not considering climate change sufficiently 
um, when it considers approving and permitting uh, new fossil fuel projects. And so that uh, doesn't necessarily apply to other states that might not have those language in their constitution, um, but it was the first big victory of that kind, sort of on a generational basis. And there are similar cases in Hawaii, which might now have more salience given the tragedy. Um, you've got cases in Utah, Virginia, Oregon. Um, and so it was kind of an interesting um, decision to see our children's trust, you know, win in their day in court. And, um, you know, that's the second time a group has won. You know, Greenpeace and Friends of Earth um, beat Shell out in a court in the Netherlands because Dutch law provides that corporations have a duty to care and be aligned with society. Um, and that was a pretty cataclysmic decision that caused Shell to uh, move its headquarters. Um, so, um, but there are these all these cases out there that are related to the precautionary principle, whether a, a firm should know uh, that climate change uh, might uh, affect infrastructure uh, and own facilities in a way that might harm um, the public. So, you know, it's sort of like a, a new area where suddenly some of these cases are gaining momentum and some of these groups are, are winning in court. And, you know, that might affect um, going forward how companies have to think about their liability uh, on, on climate change and not taking action on climate change. Yeah, that is a very interesting thought. I have two also. Um, uh, one is very quick. Uh, update on the Energy Gang Book Club. Um, Robbie Orvis, Melissa Lott, and I have all been reading uh, The Water Life, a sort of futuristic climate change-related thriller by Paolo Bacigalupi. I just finished it yesterday. I have to say I was absolutely gripped by it. Very highly recommended. Um, anyone who hasn't read it, we are going to want to talk about that on a future show as well. And then also, my other um, for Electron is just a thought. This is the classic lazy journalist technique, talking to your cab driver. Had a very interesting discussion with my Uber driver. I'm currently in England, talking to my Uber driver here the other day. He's driving an EV, um, driving a Kia EV, which he really liked, and chatting about it and saying what he think. He said it's fantastic. The thing, though, that really bothered him was charging time and the lack of charging infrastructure. And as he was saying, even on the supposedly fast chargers, it can take an hour to charge. He says if you turn up at a charging point, and there's only one point and there's two cars ahead of you in the queue, that means you know you're going to be there for three hours. And particularly for that business, if you're um, uh, working uh, as a Uber driver, minicab, something like that, where you want to maximize the amount of time that you're working and on the road get the most use possible out of your car, that's a real blow to the economics of doing that. And it's clearly just an indication that the role of government in particular is really important. There's a coordination problem between having enough uh, EVs on the road and having enough charging infrastructure out there. Someone has to kind of break that chicken and egg problem. And I really think it's got to be government that does that and really makes more of a push to put the EV charging infrastructure in place. And clearly that effort, the UK is a country which is supposedly committed to going all electric, but the government really needs to get behind charging infrastructure if they're going to do that because it's obviously not moving fast enough at the moment, certainly not 
in London, as I say, where I've uh, just been and talking to my Uber driver about that. So, um, going to leave it there, but thank you very much indeed, Amy, and thanks, Shanu, for coming in, both of you. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Ed. I'm off to go Google what stonewashed denim is. Exactly. Ask your dad. <laughs> and uh, many thanks also to our producers, Toby Biggins-Gilchrist and Sam Nash. And above all, of course, many thanks to all of you for listening. As you know, we're always very keen to hear your thoughts, praise, criticism, comments, uh, complaints, ideas for future shows, whatever it might be. I'm giving up running through all of our manifestations on social media. There's just too many of them now, but you can find us as The Energy Gang or me personally on X, the social network formerly known as Twitter, and we're also on Mastodon, Threads, and Blue Sky, and LinkedIn, and possibly a couple of others that I can't think of right now. We really are still badly in need, I think, of that common platform that will bring together the best quality energy debate. Hasn't happened yet. If anyone thinks they know where it's emerging and where that community is starting to form, please do let me know because I think it's a really important thing. And I think when Twitter served that purpose two or three years ago and further back, it was incredibly valuable. And so it'd be great to get back there again. Anyway, in the meantime, please do send us your feedback in any way that works for you. And we'll be back again in two weeks for all the latest news and views on what's next for the energy transition. Until then, goodbye. Thank you